Welcome to the Envision Rise podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Hegarty, Vice President of Equity and Inclusion for Envision Rise. Joining us today is leadership and life coach Leah May, and Leah May is the founder of Leah May Coaching. Welcome, Leah. Hi, Stacey. Thanks so much for having me. I always like when we get an opportunity. So you actually are a friend of someone who works at Envision Rise, and it's always really interesting to see how our worlds kind of intersect a little bit. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a leadership and a life coach presently, but I actually got my start in this world about 12 years ago when I began in recruiting and HR. I built my career there really focusing on, you know, how do we make corporations more human? How do we make space for um, the humanity in our workplaces, help people feel happier, more connected at work? And that you know, tended to be a natural segue into my coaching career, which I started about seven years ago. So that's uh, how we reconnected here. Ooh, there's a lot to unpack here, yeah. <laughs> um, especially with the state of the world right now. Finding happiness at work might be a long stretch for some folks, but let's talk a little bit about what are you seeing in the world of work right now? What are people struggling with? What are leaders trying to do better and different? What are people struggling with? Because if we can identify it, we can help to maybe soothe it. Maybe we can fix it. A lot of times we can't fix it, but we can at least understand it. Absolutely. So I think one of the biggest struggles comes from really feeling like we're supposed to be one way at work, you know, put together professional focused and bypass everything that's happened, you know, personally in the world. And maybe a handful of years ago, that was the norm. Then we had, you know, the massive events of a global pandemic, um, everything that happened in 2020, the uprise over the election and Black Lives Matter and George Floyd. And suddenly you can't ignore humanity eight hours, 10 hours a day when you're going to work. And so I feel like that's when the thread started to unravel. Certainly, you know, current events keep us with tender hearts and keep us feeling the heaviness of what is the state of the world in so many cases. And that compartmentalization between work and home has become less and less for many of us. And for the folks that hasn't, that tension is building because we can't ignore half of ourselves eight to 10 hours a day. And so that's what I've seen people really struggle with. And a lot of people start to make that shift is how can I just be a whole human wherever I go and still do a good job and still get promoted and paid well? Like how how do these worlds intersect? Our regular listeners have heard me talk quite a bit about when I first became a manager of people, the person who put me in that role, promoted me to that role sat me down and said, keep your work at work, keep your home at home. Your employees should know nothing about what's going on in in your life. And that's just how it's supposed to be. Okay, now I know that's terrible advice, but I didn't at the time. And I think there's still a segment of people in leadership who feel that way. And then you've got employees who don't feel that way. I've been working at home for many years and then the pandemic came And everybody started working from home if they could. And all of a sudden, we couldn't keep our work out of our home because we were working out of our homes. What kind of guidance would you give to a leader who is 
maybe still stuck in that mindset of work is work and home is home. Unless of course we need you after hours and then we're going to go ahead and email you and text you at home anyway. But, (laughs) (laughs) but we certainly don't want your family texting or emailing you needing something from you while you're at work. Uh, We've still got folks in powers, positions of power that feel that way. How would you guide them to maybe try to shift their perspective a little? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think folks lead that way because they think it's cleaner, it's easier to keep things separate. What we know now is this buzz phrase, which I think most of us can resonate. It's called burnout, right? And when you are compartmentalizing pieces of yourself, when you can't be human, you're not allowed to be, there are repercussions which do in fact then affect your work, your workplace, your productivity. So there are down the stream impacts that it sounds nice if we could just compartmentalize. It's just not reality. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more leaders are starting to feel their own consequences of that type of leadership. So I would encourage you, you know, to lean into that humanity and just figure out like, what is the first small step? I'm not saying we have to to go full out and have, you know, talking circles every single day at work. I, I don't know. I could actually get excited about that. That's another <laughs> conversation. But, you know, how do we bring a touch of humanity to each meeting, to each interaction? Start small, build some safety there. And, and then I think they'll find it's actually quite safe and people are going to want to be more committed, more loyal when they feel like they're not having to compartmentalize and pretend and keep this facade up. And it feels kind of counterintuitive with as much time as we spend online. And there's lots of studies out there saying that, you know, we are more isolated than we used to be. So this bit, bringing this bit of humanity can feel a little overwhelming to be that vulnerable. How do you work with people to get comfortable with that kind of vulnerability when the rest of the world is kind of pushing us in a direction to not be that vulnerable? Yeah. With any sort of improvement or growth, start small. My coach taught me turtle steps, right? Like what is the slowest, smallest step you can inch towards that? I do think vulnerability has to be built. I think it has to be earned. And so you may not want to go out with a full, here's the download of everything going on in my life. That might be too far. But can you share, you know, one thing I did with a a team of mine is at the beginning of each meeting, we did a check-in. Here's the check-in topic of the day. Or everyone share one hard thing and one great thing going on in your life. So just small doses, I think, is the place to start. I like the idea of that check-in, of the one great thing, one hard thing, and making it clear that it doesn't just have to be about work. I would guess a lot of the times people were talking about work for hard things and great things they might be talking about. You know, my kid made the baseball team or, you know, those kinds of things. Anything that opens the door just a little bit more to greater connection, I think is so important. I do want to talk a bit about what is often referred to as work-life balance. At Envision Rise, we talk about work-life integration. There are all sorts of different ways of stating it, but we do know that balance isn't really possible in the strict definition of the word balance. So how do you work with people who are trying to do a better job of not just being a worker and not being able to figure out how to manage all the aspects of their life in a way that feels healthy. Yeah. And and I'm so glad you opened this topic with saying that you don't really buy into work-life balance because I'm very much on the same page. In fact, 
when I think of balance, I think of striving for that perfect 50-50, I like to use this mental image of a person on a unicycle, right? And they're trying to balance and, and every muscle has to be engaged because if they mess up, they fall over and crash and burn and, and everything hurts, right? And so often that is the tension we feel between our personal life and our work life, trying to get it just right. And so integration, I think even just that framing is a really beautiful way to start. I'm one whole human. How do I go to work and do a great job and feel accomplished and like I'm contributing and go home and, you know, add value to my family and feel engaged and connected in my community circles. Like I'm one whole person and I have capacity to think about. And when I think about my whole self doing all of those things versus part of me goes to work, part of me goes home, like it's, it's a capacity issue. Right. And so I think the framing of that really has to be the place to start. Why does it matter from an employer's perspective? Why should they care if their employees bring their full selves to work or just their work self? Sure. So I could answer this from the human lens, but I think <laughs> what you're asking for is what's the business case? Mm -hmm. So from an employer lens, the cost of turnover is one of the biggest costs you will incur. The time to not only hire and train, but all of that institutional knowledge that's lost when someone leaves I mean, the amount of time and effort and energy, the cost savings alone to reduce retention, it's massive, right? So I would say from, you know, just purely a lens of business, I think our resources are, are the number one thing. So that would be the first case. There's also a lot of research and studies that show when employees feel like they are in a place with empathy, when they feel there is trust built with their direct supervisor, if they have one friend at work, they are going to be happier. They're going to be more productive. They're going to do better work. So overall, it's, it's a retention thing for me. And then deeper than that, of course, you know, I think a lot of companies now are talking about culture and values. And so for me, this is the real work of what that looks like. Like, but certainly there's a business case with dollars and cents to be had. The culture piece, the values piece, these are things that are so difficult to quantify. And so often when leaders are looking at different efforts being made, sometimes I see them almost give up, just sort of shrug and be like, well, we can't measure it other than we know that we're retaining a few more employees than we used to. As we're looking at the job market right now, and lots of companies are struggling to fill roles because we have such low unemployment right now, plus they're also looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion as an important factor in building or rebuilding or restructuring their culture. What would you suggest that an organization looks at in order to help them build a culture that not only retains, but attracts high talent employees. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in terms of retaining, I am a huge fan of employee surveys. And I'm not talking about the once a year survey that you have to fill out, but really the pulse checks that let your team know, let your leaders know, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to refer people to my company. I know my company's got my back when something happens in my personal life. You can receive a lot of sentiments 
if you ask for it and create a safe place for those comments to come in. So I think really polling your employees regularly and often is a really good way to get a sense of the internal pulse. When it comes external, word on the street travels fast. We know the great companies to work for. We know the terrible ones. There's you know review sites like Glassdoor, but often how a candidate is treated in the recruiting process will really make or break their decision of if they want to work at this company, if they want to tell colleagues and friends. So the reputation stands. And I think it goes a long way, even if a candidate, you know, fails your process, doesn't make it to the offer, but they're like, wow, they were so thoughtful and intentional in that process. I really wish I would have made it and I'm going to apply again in the future. That says so much more than the recruiter ghosted me or the manager, you know, ended the meeting 10 minutes early and didn't even seem interested in my background, right? How you treat someone, just like how we treat our employees, how you treat your candidates says a lot. And, and that word travels. The recruiting process is so often overlooked in the whole life cycle of an employee. And I think some of that comes from you have such an impersonal approach at this point to just getting your resume in the door. You know, you click on the link from Indeed and then you're taken to the company website and then you're asked to upload your resume and then you get the joy of going in and filling in all of that information by hand. <laughs> and then it falls into what seems like a black hole and maybe you'll hear back or maybe you won't. Mm -hmm. And then we've got these long drawn out recruiting cycles of you really need to interview with everybody in the company. <laughs> and what does that do to a candidate? Even if everyone is on time and punctual and appears to be engaged, do really long recruiting processes actually help bring in a better candidate? I I'm asking you, I think probably to go back to your original career path yeah. and does it help? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Quick, quick answer, no. And there, there's a lot of interesting data and research, not only from the candidate experience side, but then, you know, how many people are you asking for their opinion? Are those, you know, have you done the work? Are those people aligned with what you're looking for in the role? What a great fit for the role is. And the longer the process, the excitement dies out on both parts. So typically, the longer the process of an acceptance rate you're going to have from your candidate. Also, it shows a lot about the company and how do you value that other person, their time, their energy, their resources, because they're taking off time from their current job or they're finding childcare or they're, you know, dressing and makeup and getting ready for the interview five times. Like, you know, how you treat someone and how you value their time says a lot as a candidate as how you're going to treat them as an employee as well. If you're canceling an interview last minute, it's not a good look. Let's talk about how to showcase your culture to someone who doesn't know, someone who's still on the outside thinking about maybe joining your organization, knowing that candidates have lots of options now and every single organization out there is talking about what a great inclusive culture we have. 
Yeah. You can tell people or you can show people. And so it's interesting coming from the HR field, there's all these strategies for how do we signal we're cool and inclusive. You know, back in the day, it was, do you have a ping pong table? Do you have beer in the fridge on Friday? And that was a cool culture. And now what we're noticing and seeing are, you know, what are the touch points of your hiring process? Even if it's the canned email that's like, thanks for your application, is it thoughtful? Does it talk about your process? Does it let the person know what to expect and a general time frame? As you're speaking with people in the company, what are they signaling to you? Are they signaling that they're stressed out and running from meeting to meeting and they can never stay caught up? Or are they sitting back and really answering your questions thoughtfully? Are they telling you about their experience? Do you see diversity in your process or is everyone hyping it up? You know, it's a good sound bite. Is it just on the website or are you getting touch points of that throughout? So it's really less of what they're saying and more what they're doing in the process. Well, let's say that an organization runs one of the surveys that you mentioned and it comes back with news that's not so great. (laughs) What should leaders do at that point? Other and. I say this because so oftentimes when we get feedback that we don't like, especially in the form of a survey and often in the comments part of the survey, that rather than approaching that feedback with an open mind, a lot of times leaders will actually become defensive and say, see, it's just keep people complaining. We're never going to make them happy. And then they do nothing with that data from the survey. Yeah. What should leaders be doing? Yeah. Well, and I think this begins before you even send a survey, are you willing to hear that feedback? Because now you're asking people to open up and there is nothing more detrimental than asking for feedback, receiving it, and then doing nothing or even worse, getting defensive. So if you don't have the resources, the time, the finances to put behind really listening and implementing change, then don't bother with the survey because over time, people are going to start to distrust that process. Why would I even bother to fill out a survey if action isn't going to follow up? So, And then that becomes your culture. Exactly. Exactly. So I think the most valuable thing you can do is listen and listen. And so you get the survey data back. I would encourage you to have some neutral, unbiased party, whether that's a consultant, um, someone in the DEI field, someone who's really helping you understand what your employees are saying. And if there's more questions, if it opens up deeper topics, host listening sessions, what can we do about this? And the biggest thing I think you can do on this, it's, it's your own PR. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're listening. Here's the plan. Here's, you know, every step of the way, letting the employees know we heard you and this is what we're doing. And we heard this. And so we're going to try that. And we want to know how that did. And so we're going to check back in. Like that communication, a survey can't be a one-way street. It has to be the beginning of a conversation. And again, if you don't have the time, energy, and capacity for that, please don't run the survey. Don't give an employee false hope. It's so important, I think, that you view surveys as a starting point. And often they're treated as sort of a requirement. Maybe it's just a, hey, just want to make sure that you think we're as great as we do kind of survey, as opposed to really digging in. And those listening groups you talked about, what are those like? Because they're so important to giving context to what the survey said. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, how that shapes up will depend a lot on the company culture. If there's trust, you know, I've seen founders and CEOs 
sit in a room and either open an anonymous, you know, question box or start a conversation. I've also seen cultures where that didn't feel safe. The power dynamic wasn't correct. The culture wasn't ready for that. And so there's been unbiased coaches or consultants, DEI workers come in and they are the host of those listening groups. It's a safe place where that information is is not tied to anyone's name or title. So it can go a few different directions, but again, there's got to be a game plan for now that we receive that information, what are we doing with it? And is senior leadership open to hearing that and making those changes? And it starts at the top. It, it absolutely starts with the C-suite, the executive team going first. We talk a lot about, yes, we want employees to be vulnerable and bring their full selves to work. That starts at the top. If all anyone sees of the CEO is a nice suit and tie and conference calls, is that really signaling that it's safe? And maybe the CEO isn't the only person that signals safety. Who else within an organization can start being the go first person when an organization is trying to change into a more open and transparent organization? Absolutely. I think any person who manages a person owns that responsibility. Whether you're a first-line manager, a senior leader, or a C-suite, it has to permeate through the entire leadership structure. Otherwise, you don't have a company culture. Maybe you have a team culture or Mm -hmm. a department culture. So it really has to be like, here are our leadership principles. This is how we show up in the hallway. This is how we show up in our one-to-ones. This is how we conduct you know, performance reviews or hearing hard things. So it can't be a one-off is is the question. I've seen amazing CEOs who didn't realize they had terrible leaders under them. And so CEOs great, but I don't have access to them. So what does my day-to-day look like? Well, it's my direct boss or supervisor. So it really has to be a leadership strategy. When you're working with the C-suite and talking with them about changing the culture from where they sit What are some of the first things that you want them to start to do? Oh, that's such a good question. I think listening is really the biggest thing anyone in the C-suite can do because it's been a long time since they've been, you know, a day-to-day individual contributor. And so they are often, you know, thinking about the stakeholders and the board and the KPIs and are we going to hit the numbers? And they're not thinking about what is it like in the day and the life of you know, a a salaried worker or an hourly employee, what are they experiencing? What is their culture like? And the higher you go, you you tend to kind of lose perspective, I think, when it comes to the day-to-day experience of your employees. So I think listening has to be that first step. On the flip side of that, what advice would you give to someone who is just starting their career and maybe looking at a path towards leadership? What skills should they be building now That will help them as a leader? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great question. There's obviously the technical skills of your trade, whatever department you're in. And so many times, this is actually how our leaders get promoted. They were great at their day-to-day skill set. And so here, go manage some people. And then we forget to teach them those leadership skills. So anything that is going to help you, um, you know, address conflict, address people's different learning styles, their different reward styles, it really is about human psychology. How do I want to be treated? How do I want to influence positive change? And I would say anything people-related, leadership-related has got to be the start of that. At the end of the day, it's what experience do you want 
for your employees? And how are you personally going to help create that? Not the CEO, not HR, but like you personally, what's your ownership in that conversation? That ownership piece is so important, especially when you're an individual contributor, because it's so easy to fall into, well, if the CEO were better, if my boss wasn't terrible, or this culture is just awful. And as an individual contributor, it can often feel like I don't have any power in this situation, but we actually do as an individual contributor. We have quite a bit of authority over our own experience. We can't control the way somebody else shows up, but we can show up in a way that is effective and helps us get to where we want to go. Absolutely. And I would say that was actually a really big turning point in my own career. I definitely was a blamer at the beginning. Oh, my <laughs> boss is awful. The CEO doesn't get it. You know, it's very easy to point fingers. And when I worked with my first coach, they really taught me about personal ownership and autonomy. And I realized my boss at the time was never going to sit down and plan out, here's a career map for you. And here are the three things you need to work on. But I decided if, if I want to continue to grow, I need to have a plan for myself. And so I sat down and wrote out my own career plan. And when I stopped blaming and really started taking the ownership, that's when things took off for me. And that's extra work and it's hard, but it's so empowering and freeing to know that you have autonomy and you don't have to wait for someone outside of you to, to help you with those skills. What's it like having a leadership coach? So often it's sort of, there isn't true coaching going on, you know, maybe there's some leadership courses that someone's expected to take or all the directors are going to read a certain book. But when you're talking about individual one-on-one -on -one leadership coaching, what should someone expect out of that? Yeah, I like to liken it a bit to uh, like a sports coach, right? So their goal is to help you win your game and hit your goals. So they're sometimes they're talking strategy. Sometimes they're pointing out, hey, do you know you always do this thing when you go to the left? And so they're pointing out those blind spots in the game. I think of a leadership coach in the same way. Yes, I've got tips and tricks and strategies, and we can talk about that all day long. We can talk about how to get better performance out of your team, how to be a better leader, but also I'm going to be able to call you on your stories. I'm going to be able to point out those spots that you can't see yourself and ultimately help you get to your goals faster. So it, it's like having a personal mentor, someone who is bought into your success and they're not going to sugarcoat it because they're really there to help you improve, not just feel good about your day to day. Leah, we are coming close to the end of our time. Where can our listeners get in touch with you, find out more about what you offer, websites, all that kind of stuff. And this is a good time for you to talk about your brand new podcast. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So if you want to hear my voice more, you can go to Apple or Spotify or any of your uh, favorite podcast platforms. And I just launched my new podcast called The Work-Life Coach. That is a write-in, call-in style show where we answer all your HR questions with practical strategies, but also with a lens of coaching. So the new podcast, theworklifecoachpodcast.com, you can go and grab those links. And if you're interested in coaching, then leahmaycoaching.com is where you can learn about that and grab a free discovery call to figure out if coaching is a good path for you. Wonderful. Well, Leah May, thank you so much for your insights. This was a great discussion. I'm sure everybody's going to walk away with some new tools. I definitely did. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Subscribe, rate, and review the show and be a part of making a difference because it starts with you.